Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Our sermon text this Easter evening is John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. That's page 906 in the Pew Bible, the account in John's gospel I've just read to you. It's the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and that grand encounter with Mary Magdalene. Now, John's focus is to describe how you and I, as sinful beings, respond when confronted with the fact of bodily resurrection, Jesus raised bodily from the dead. So we must say right from the start, this is no metaphor. Mary Magdalene's experiences here are not her own inner psychological journey, but rather she smacks into a wall of fact. She sees the Lord Jesus as he was, as she had known him before. And it is that encounter with the living Lord Jesus that transforms her life. You see, because this indeed is John's purpose in his entire gospel. We gain a sense of it here that he is reaching the end of his account. And he wants to set the purpose clearly for us. You'll find it at the end of this very chapter, in verse 31. This is what John writes. But these signs were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, the gospel is not a biography. It's a separate genre, a different species entirely. Now, why is that so? Because God himself is its author through the agency of the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's God who guarantees the scriptures. Indeed, he promises and guarantees that it is his means to bring about salvation conversion, the transformation of those outside in rebellion, drawn into the adoption as sons and daughters of God by the power of his Spirit. The gospel is the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Its purpose is your conversion, my dear friend. This is what the Apostle Paul summarizes when he writes how God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they may receive adoption as sons. So it should not surprise us then, as John sets this outline before us in chapter 20, that we would see a structure, a pattern here, in this great encounter that brings Mary into eternal life, this account of meeting the living Jesus. 
four big words this evening. Confusion, question, illumination, and proclamation. These are indeed the words of our conversion. How John explains that to us will become clear as we go through his account of this great meeting of Mary and the Lord Jesus. He begins by describing Mary's confusion. Then he shows how a question turns everything and brings illumination. And it is a transforming illumination that compels her to proclamation. Confusion, question, illumination, and proclamation. Now, let's begin then with confusion. Why confusion? Well, John begins where we all are. The fact that Jesus is dead. If you look just before our text this evening to the end of chapter 19, you'll see the eyewitness account of the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see in the text the last words of our Savior, the confirmation of his death in the Roman soldier's javelin at the side, drawing viscera and blood, the removal and preparation of his corpse for burial, the ending with the location of his tomb, a tomb in a garden near the place of our Savior's crucifixion, both outside the city walls. Why? Because of the law of Moses. The dead are unclean and are therefore outside of the camp, outside of the city wall. Indeed, that's how we can see then the light of love and devotion in Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and the women as they come to care for the body of the Lord Jesus, and it made them unclean to keep the Passover. They chose the Christ whom they had loved and now was dead, and they sought to honor him by bypassing this important date in the Jewish calendar. So the next morning, the first day of the week, a group of women, and counted among them as Mary Magdalene, come towards the garden. Now, how do we know there's a group? Well, there's two reasons. The first is the evidence of the other Gospels. They also talk of a group of women. But we, all, we have a clue here, too, though, in, in verse 2, where Mary says, we do not know where they have laid him. Notice we, plural, more than one. So how does this scene unfold? Now, we must consider then how this group of women are exhausted from the horror they have seen just the other day. Most likely, they would not have been able to sleep at all in that night. They are in deep bereavement, shock, numb, in mourning, with no hope whatsoever. They did not expect anything different except more sorrow as they lovingly looked on the corpse of their master and teacher one last time. That final adieu. All very true to life, don't you think? 
What was true in the first century is certainly true today. We all understand from a time we are a small child in the death of our first pet, perhaps in our teenage years, the loss of grandparents or others in our school who may have been taken in a tragic accident or illness. So we understand this, don't you? When you go to a cemetery to bring flowers, you never expect an empty grave, do you? You do not. So let's say you do find one. What would your conclusion be? That what is dead stays dead. Therefore, it's not resurrection you're thinking about. You're thinking about what? They've taken the body away. And I don't know where it is. And that's exactly what John describes here. Giving us that veracity that we have here in eyewitness account. Now, notice how Mary is the one who notices first that something's wrong. She must have been within range of the tomb to see that the stone had been rolled away. For me, I can imagine her just giving a, a scream and turning and running back into the city to tell the disciples. In other words, Mary has absolutely no clue of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So, right away, everyone is thrown into bewilderment and confusion, and the empty tomb just intensifies it. What they accepted as fact, just the way life is, is turned on its head. The angels asked the women, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Notice how Jesus asked the same question. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for among the dead? That's what they were doing, weren't they? Now, Mary reaches Peter and John at a run. They run to the tomb. And by the time they get there, the other women have left. So they're alone. So John looks in, but knowing the laws concerning the dead and uncleanliness, he pauses, he doesn't go in. But Peter, ah, Peter, still burdened with the guilt of his threefold denial of Jesus, rushes into the tomb. They have no experience of resurrection either. How do we know this? Because John tells us, doesn't he? For as yet... They did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They go home. So by this time, a tired Mary, who had spent it all in running, had walked back to the tomb. She's now alone herself. The other women are gone. We met the angels, the disciples, Peter and John returned to the city. And she comes to the tomb, and she stood there weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look in. And as she looked in, everything starts to change. The question. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So the angels set up what the Lord Jesus confirms in just a few moments by asking this simple question. You're in the wrong place. 
This is not the place for weeping. You are looking for the living among the dead. You do not find the living in cemeteries. So Mary doesn't understand any of this. So she cries out, wailing deeply. The question is now turning in her mind. How can this be true? How can this be true? My dear friends, so many around the world, in churches and denominations that have lost the light of the gospel, will exhaust themselves in services in this past week of Holy Week. One former colleague of mine in the Episcopal Church boasted, I think, that he had 15 services between Palm Sunday and today, all feeling bad for Jesus, poor Jesus the martyr, for the great idea that all were equal before God. And all his liturgy, all his messages were how we should be sorry for this. We should go and honor him in our lives. We should do things in his name. Meanwhile, Jesus can remain dead as dead can be. No difference in your life except to push law, the great goad to do good. And somehow, God will accept you. That is the great question, isn't it? If Jesus were actually dead, would your life be any different than it is now? Would he be in a moral example, impressed with his wisdom? How much influence? Is our life any different? But what happens here? Encountering the Lord Jesus changes everything. She watched Jesus die. She saw Jesus was dead. Now the body is gone. Now this question, you're in the wrong place. And the illumination grows. Having said this, She turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The same question as the angels, right? Whom are you seeking? Ah, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, you can track how Mary's understanding is transformed by the number of turns that she makes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 14. Remember, she's looking in the tomb. When she's asked by the angel, she answered with the statement she gave Peter and John. They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. So up to this point, nothing's changed for Mary, right? But then she senses someone behind her. You know how that is. If you you suddenly get that sense that someone is close and they're out of your field of vision. So you turn. That's in verse 14. In the early light, she presumes what? It's the gardener. Probably doesn't even look very far. 
more of a glance over the shoulder than a full body turn. Why? The dead stay dead. She's still focused on the tomb, the place of the dead. She did not know it was Jesus. She did not know it was the last Adam in the garden, just like the first Adam in the garden. Adam is the gardener. Christ is the gardener. So Jesus adds the question, whom are you seeking? He presses here, doesn't he? Mary's problem is, is that she doesn't remember what Jesus said. How it was necessary for Christ to suffer death. Because the justice and truth of God require that satisfaction for our sins. It cannot be made any other way than by the death of the Son of God. She had heard him say this repeatedly as she was one of the disciples. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. She had never taken it in, had she? She'd heard it, but never taken it in. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now, Mary's promise to get the body from the, wherever the gardener may have taken him suggests that she is a woman of wealth and of standing, doesn't it? Because we know also how John records in chapter 12 that she anointed Jesus' feet with a pound of nard oil worth about a year's wage if you were an average wage earner of the day. In other words, she's still in the past. And her plea, she turns back to the tomb Jesus is still the corpse. Now, do you see the second time she turns? It'd be easy to miss. It's in verse 16. When does it occur? Jesus calls her name. Mary. Mary. He calls her with that intimacy that comes with being her savior. That one word remakes her world. And suddenly, all the tumblers fall into place. This confirmation of the personal nature of our Lord's dealing with his people. Just one word of illumination, and all the remembrances fall into place. Because the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. And what did John record? Our Savior answered They recognize his voice. They recognize his voice. No longer dead moral example, but a resurrected and living Savior. She'd been looking for him in all the wrong places. She assumed that she knew everything about him. But she got everything totally wrong. And that is the thing, isn't it? What we think we need to know always stops short because we fail to realize the pervasiveness of the sinfulness which we still retain. We need that transforming word. We need him to call our name. Where does he do this for us today? In the scriptures. In the same way that Jesus' own living voice said those words, we have it there before us in black and white. 
That is where we found out that he is no mere man. He is the son of man. He is not just someone who will die a normal life. He is the ancient of days. He is the Lord of all. And so Mary moves from confusion as her world's turned upside down in a question and the great illumination in the calling of her name. And she worships. She bows low as we have seen Abraham bow low. Clasping his legs, she is utterly his. He is her Lord, her whole heart, her whole mind, her whole strength are his. But there's more. There's the proclamation. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. There is wonderful comfort here, isn't there? Jesus is trying to help Mary understand. From now on, although the resurrection appearances are a special exception, Jesus is not to be known as he has been known. The resurrection and his ascension imply a new and fundamentally superior quality of relationship with Jesus. You no longer have to be within geographical proximity of him, but it can be shared with every disciple in every place, in every age of that faith union brought about by the power of the Spirit. My dear friend, when he converted you, he called your name. And you turned. Conversion means turn, doesn't it? And worshiped him. What's going on here? It's as if Jesus has said, I'm not yet ascended. The comfort of the Holy Spirit has not yet come. So do not hang on me as if I was about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy, for sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I was some jealously guarded private dream come true. Stop clinging to me, but go, go and tell. Go and tell my disciples that I am in the process of ascending to my Father and your Father. So Mary takes this wonderful message. Jesus has conquered death, ascension, The assumption of authority at Father's right hand is now his. Rejoice! But notice this amazing privilege that is the foundation of that joy. Do you see it there? It's quite simple. It's easily missed. My Father and your Father. My God and your God. There is a qualitative difference here. That is profound. Up to this point, Jesus' relationship to the Father has been a mystery the disciples might not tread upon or even approach. But in his death and in his rising, which the ascension will ratify, a new profound relationship comes because he is now your Father. 
as much as he is Christ's father according to his human nature. Although that relationship remains so unique between them in terms of the Trinity, because he became flesh and dwelt among us, he made it possible for you, my dear friend, to have a special communion between the living God and yourself in a resurrected flesh. Previously, the sole preserve of Jesus Christ is thrown open. The doors are open to all of us, as John in Revelation points out that the gates of the New Jerusalem are open always. Communion with God is now ours. And so, like a good missionary with a wonderful story to tell, Mary responds to our Lord's commands. She tells the good news, the message illumined by her own radiant testimony. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. So that is the great question, isn't it? What of you, my dear friend? Have you passed from confusion concerning who Jesus is and why he came? Or do you still seek him among the dead, an exemplar, a fine teacher, or a philosopher, a myth of human crafting? Do you have the courage to confront the angel's question? Are you seeking the living among the dead? My dear friend, Open your mind and your heart. Turn to John's gospel. Trust in what you read there. Jesus Christ is risen, ascended, and sitting at God's right hand to guarantee you adoption as God's son or daughter. Eternal life without spot or wrinkle in communion surpassing anything of beauty or bliss or love that you may have experienced in that small way that is humanly possible in a world that has fallen and passing away. Here is our future selves in communion with him. That is why we rejoice on an Easter day. That is why we proclaim on an Easter day. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For it is by no other name, in heaven or on earth, by which you will be saved. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.